All right, let's get, uh, let's open up to Acts chapter 6. I think what we'll do is we'll read verses 8 to 15. Verses, Acts 6, 8 to 15 as a starter. There's going to be more than that, but that's where we'll get started. Okay, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And Lord, as we open up your word this morning and read these words of Holy Scripture, we, we pray that we would be inspired by your servant Stephen. That, Lord, there would be something in his life that would ring true and that you would speak to it, Lord, and that you would challenge us. Lord, just as Stephen imitated Christ, I pray that we might imitate Christ. That we would follow his example. Your word says that the one who abides in Jesus should walk in the same manner as he walked. And so we pray that that would come true. That would, you would, your spirit would be working in our hearts today as we read this life story. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we saw how that the apostles decided that it would be a mistake for them to neglect the word of God in order to get involved in serving tables. Do you remember all of that? There was a problem in the early church where the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows felt like they were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And so the apostles were tempted to run in and get involved, but they, they, they stopped themselves and said, no, that's not right. It's not good for us to neglect the word of God to serve tables. They told the congregation to select seven men who are of good reputation, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And they said, we will appoint them to this task. And so they did that. They chose seven men. Two of the seven men were Stephen and Philip. And really, they are the only two of the seven that we really know anything about. We know the names of the other five, but that's it. But the Holy Spirit, for His reasons, has decided to give us an insight into the life of two of those men. So we read about Stephen, the second half of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7. And then we read about Philip, and all of chapter 8. So we're going to be taking some time to study the lives of these two men of God. They were not apostles. They started out as ordinary disciples of Jesus, and God used them in dramatic ways, just like he can use anyone he chooses to use. So here we have this much fuller description of their lives and their ministries. 
The one thing that the Holy Spirit emphasizes more than anything else about Stephen was that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And let's just go through some passages that show us that. Chapter 6, verse 3. The apostles required that these men would be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And chapter 6, verse 5, it says, They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Interesting, of those seven men, Stephen is the only one where it gives any kind of a description about his life. And the description that is revealed to us is that he was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power. Full of grace and power. Well, pray tell, where did this power that he had come from? Jesus told, told his disciples in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. So the power for his ministry came from the Holy Spirit. In Acts 6 verse 10 it says, But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. Again, a reference to the powerful working of the Spirit in Stephen's life. And then in chapter 7, all the way at the end, verse 55, when Stephen is about to die, the Bible says, But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. So... The Holy Spirit is emphasizing that he, the Holy Spirit, was manifest in Stephen's life over and over and over again. That was the distinguishing characteristic, we might say, about Stephen. Also notice that the word full keeps coming up in reference to Stephen. He was full of the Spirit, he was full of wisdom, he was full of grace, he was full of power. So I was tempted to call this message Stephen the life of a spirit-filled man, that was my first choice, but then I, I gave that one up and I decided to call it Stephen living like Jesus. And then next week it's going to be Stephen dying like Jesus. He was like Jesus. You looked at Stephen and you would, you would have flashbacks to Jesus' life and his death and the way that he lived and died. So what we're going to do is, is focus our time today on, on the life of Stephen. Stephen's message that he gives in chapter 7 is the longest recorded message in the book of Acts. It's even longer than the message we, we have recorded that Peter and Paul gave. Which should tell us that there was something important about this man's life that we need to learn. So this morning we're going to look at Stephen's progression, his power, his persecution, and his preaching. Four different areas of his life. May God give us grace to learn what he wants us to learn from this inspired account. So first of all, Stephen's progression. And what I mean by that is that Stephen progressed in ministry throughout his life. He didn't stay at the same place for his entire life. He starts out waiting on tables making sure Greek-speaking widows were taken care of in their daily serving of food. Doesn't sound very glamorous, does it? Doesn't sound like a very prominent role to play. It's kind of a menial task. But it's my conviction that, that Stephen would have been very diligent, very precise, very faithful in that role. I believe that because it's not very long afterwards that we find him 
being raised up by the Lord in more dramatic and more powerful ways. And one of the principles of Scripture is that if a man is faithful in a very little thing, God will entrust greater things to him. But if you're not faithful in a little thing, don't expect God to raise you up and entrust you with something greater. For example, Matthew uh, chapter 25, verse 21. This is the parable of the, the talents. There was one man who was given five talents, and he was industrious and zealous, and he worked hard with those five talents, and he made five talents more. When the master came back, he said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So there's the principle. You are faithful in these little things, these few things. I'm going to entrust you with greater things, with more things. That's what happened in Stephen's life. He was faithful serving widows. So what do we find him doing? Pretty soon, he's performing signs and wonders. After that, he's going to these uh, synagogues. Apparently, there were Greek-speaking synagogues, this synagogue of the freedmen, and he was debating Probably very similar to what the Apostle Paul would do in the synagogues when he would reason with them how Jesus was their Christ. He was their Messiah. Well, Stephen is there debating and reasoning with the Hellenistic Jews. And then the final thing we see about him is giving this public testimony before the Sanhedrin, the council, the, the highest ruling group of men. It consisted of 70 men in Israel with the most authority and power Peter's, or excuse me, Stephen's dying testimony was to, to preach Jesus Christ and call them to repentance and what they did with Christ. Uh, and it's, that's the way he goes out. He ends up dying that way. And I think often we think certain tasks are too menial or that task is beneath us. I'm not going to do that task. If you... If you want God to use you in a greater way, start with whatever he's given you right now and be faithful and diligent with it. I remember Chuck Smith <laughs> you would tell stories about someone coming up to him and saying, yeah, I, I just want to preach the gospel. I, wa I want a ministry. And he would say, see all those cigarette butts out there on the floor? Go clean those up. And when you're done with that, you can sign up and volunteer for a Sunday school class of sixth graders. You know, he would give them something, but he, would, he wouldn't start them off at the top. He would start them off at the bottom. And as they were faithful, they would be given, promoted to greater ministry and then greater ministry. And if they remained humble, giving God the glory and diligent and faithful, they, they would be raised up to greater services. So maybe that means something like giving rides to people who have no car to attend service or to get their groceries, or something like that. Maybe it would mean something like taking a homeless person a meal, or faithfully meeting with that person to disciple them week after week after week, though nobody else knows about it. Your name's not in the spotlight, but you are doing a, a real ministry that Jesus wants you to do, and you're being faithful with it. Maybe that person you're discipling is your children. Maybe it's a family member that you're investing in and you're pouring out your life for. And it may seem small, and it may seem insignificant, but God has you in training for greater service. If you want God to use you in a great way, be diligent where he has you right now. Stephen did that. He started off and God progressed him. 
in ministry. Okay, secondly, Stephen's power. Acts chapter 6, verse 8, tells us that Stephen was full of grace and power, and he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So how was this grace and power manifest in his life? Well, through wonders and signs. Wonders, that's, that's, uh, wonders and signs is a word for miracles. Supernatural feats. Things that would arrest people's attention. It was a sign of God's presence and power being among them. Now, in Hebrews 2, in verse 4, it says, God also testified with them, the apostles, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. Now there, we have the apostles doing signs and wonders, and the signs and the wonders are linked to miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 5.12, we read about signs and wonders that Peter did. In Acts 14.3, it's mentioned that Paul did signs and wonders. And so the very same word that is attributed to Peter and Paul, signs and wonders, is attributed to Stephen. Which leads me to believe that Stephen was doing the same kinds of signs and wonders that the apostles were doing. Supernatural works, wonders, things arresting people's attention. I think this would include things like healings, casting out of demons, perhaps receiving supernatural revelations, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. And for me, this verse disproves once and for all the position of the cessationist. The cessationist believes that, well, their, their argument is based on the fact that the apostles were the ones that did the miracles in the first century. And now that the apostles have died off, we shouldn't expect God to do any more miracles because we don't have apostles anymore. That's the argument. Well, it breaks down and it doesn't work because Stephen is not an apostle. And then when we get to chapter 8, we're going to read about Philip. He was not an apostle and he was doing the same things. And it breaks down because when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you read about these miracles taking place in the, in the church of Corinth. There's no apostles there, but these things are happening. It breaks down because when you read Galatians 3.5, it talks about miracles taking place in the churches of Galatia. There's no apostles there. It's just the church, but God is still doing miracles. So in my, in my understanding, I, I can't be a cessationist because I see non-apostles, God using non-apostles to do signs and wonders in the early church. I think the scripture would actually encourage instead of discourage ordinary Christians to believe God could use them in doing supernatural things. When, when, we, when we take a certain position, well, God's done, he's not doing that anymore, we have no expectation that God could use us in that way. Well, I still read of accounts, not so much here in America, but in, in like unreached places of the world where the gospel's breaking forth for the first time, demons being cast out, Healings taking place. The same kind of things we read about in the book of Acts. So, praise the Lord. God used an ordinary man, Stephen, raised him up from serving tables, gave him supernatural power, the power of the Spirit, and he's working the same kinds of things that the apostles are doing. Okay, let's look thirdly at his persecution. Verse 
Chapter 6, verse 11, back in Acts. Okay, Acts 6, 11. It says, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And verse 11 says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So, they, these rulers from the synagogue that he was debating in, secretly induced men, stirring up men, to say this. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Verse 12, And they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And th verse 13, they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So three times we're told, they secretly induced men, they stirred up the people, and they put forward false witnesses. And we're told exactly what they were so upset about in verse 14. We have heard him say that this Jesus will destroy this place, number one, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us, number two. They were, they were really upset because Stephen... They said Stephen was teaching that Jesus was going to destroy this place. What would this place refer to? The temple. The temple. The temple. And alter the customs which Moses handed down. What does that refer to? The law. What were the two most sacred things to a Jew? The temple and the law. And Stephen was, he was being accused of blaspheming against the temple and against the law, speaking against the temple and against the law. And you know, I think there was probably a grain of truth to the allegations. Because Stephen was a spirit-filled man, and I believe he would have had spiritual insight into what Jesus accomplished when he lived, died, and rose again, and how that Jesus actually fulfilled all of the symbology going on there in the temple. Jesus was the temple. Jesus was the fulfillment of the high priest. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus was the mercy seat. Jesus was the place of meeting between sinners and God. He fulfills everything that the temple foreshadowed. And Stephen, I think, knew that, and he probably would have been teaching the people. The, the, the temple is just a shadow. Jesus is the reality. Your Messiah has come. Don't fixate on this holy place. Fixate on this person who has come because he fulfills everything that this, this temple ever looked forward to. In fact, in Mark 14.58, there were certain people that were claiming that Jesus said he would destroy the temple made with hands and build another made without hands. Um... John Piper gives this illustration which I think is good. He says you can destroy your shadow if you simply lie down on top of it. It goes away. Like the reality, when the reality comes, it displaces the shadow. It displaces the thing that was pointing forward to it. Or he also gives another one. He says you destroy the need for street lights as soon as the sun comes up in the morning. And you destroy the need for a temple when the reality has come. And so when Stephen 
preached about Christ, in a sense, he was destroying their need for a temple. The Jews didn't need a temple. They, they, all they needed was this person who had came and sacrificed himself for sin. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. In the same way, Jesus fulfilled the law. And I guess it is true, he did alter some of the customs that Moses handed down. In Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12, it says that when there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law also. Jesus wasn't a priest according to the Aaronic priesthood, the sons of Aaron. He was a priesthood after the order of who? Melchizedek. A different kind of priesthood. So there was a change in the priesthood. So there's going to be a change in the law also. Well, how did Jesus change the law? Well, the Sabbath day is no longer taught in the New Testament as binding upon believers. Tithing is no longer taught in the New Testament. Those aspects of the law seem to have been altered. Circumcision is done away with. It's no longer necessary. Animal sacrifices are abolished because of the sacrifice of Christ. There are no more holy places and holy times. All the festivals have being fulfilled in Christ are done away with. There's no longer any need to observe all of the Jewish festivals. So yeah, Jesus did alter the customs that Moses handed down. So there was a grain of truth into it, but was Jesus or was Stephen blaspheming against the temple and the law? They said he's speaking against the temple. Well, no, he wasn't speaking against it. He was saying Jesus fulfilled it. That's not to speak against something. The temple and the law had their function and their role to play until the Messiah would come and fulfill them. And now that the Messiah has fulfilled them, they are set aside because Jesus is the fulfillment of them. We, we find all of our life and hope in Him, not in these other rituals and sacrifices. Okay, so there we find His persecution. And it's just the beginning because in chapter 7 we're going to find Him being persecuted up to the point of death, death of stoning. But let's look finally this morning at his preaching. In chapter 6 verse 15, it says, Fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. I wonder what an angel's face even looks like. Well, what do you think, what's happening here? A glow maybe? A shining forth? Can you think of anyone else in the Bible who ever had a glowing face? Moses, Moses did. When did that happen? When he was before the Lord. Yeah, he was up on the mountain receiving the law, wasn't he? He was in his tent too. Yeah, and when he comes down from the mountain, he's got this glowing face. So he's spending time on the mountain with God. He comes back down. He's still, his face is still glowing, so he puts a veil over it. So... God's purpose was to give to Stephen the same glowing face when he was accused of opposing the law as he gave to Moses when Moses received the law. And by that, God's revealing that both Moses' reception of the law and Stephen's interpretation of the law had his divine approval. Stephen is teaching the people how Jesus has fulfilled the law on behalf of all of his people. Then in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, The high priest pointed out this question to Stephen, Are these things so? Well, are what things so? Are you speaking against the holy place, the temple, 
and the customs of Moses, the law, are you blaspheming the law and the temple? And what Stephen does at this point is to give a long message. It's so long that we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to try to summarize it for you. Basically, he gives them a Jewish history lesson. He starts with Abraham, because Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And then he, he talks about Abraham. He does talk about Joseph. He talks about Moses, all of those three in great detail. And then he talks about Joshua, David, and Solomon in rapid fire towards the very end of his message. And I'll, I'll get to why I think he, he, he seems to speed up his message at the end. He, he's like taking his time at the beginning, going to a lot of detail. Right around when he gets to verse 45, he starts to really speed up the history. So rather than take 15 verses on David, he takes one verse. In fact, he mentions Joshua and David in verse 45, and then he mentions Solomon in verse 47, and he's wrapping up his message as fast as he can. I believe it's because he could see that the people were getting so angry that he wasn't going to be given much more time. And so he's, he has to get to the very end of what he's driving at quickly before they pick up stones and start hurling them at him. So, as, as Stephen goes through this message, what we see is that he has a deep respect for the law. He calls it the living oracles in chapter 7, verse 38. And he has a respect for the temple because he calls it the house that Solomon built for God in 7, verse 47. So he's not blaspheming those things. He's not against them. He's not trying to denigrate them in any way. He's simply saying Jesus fulfilled those things. But you know, he, he does show a reverence for the law and a reverence for the temple, but I don't think that was his primary purpose in this message. I think he knew that the council had already made up their minds that he was guilty. And I think he suspected that he might be executed because the law says that if you blaspheme God, you are to be killed by stoning. And so I think he was, that was probably going around in his mind. I could very well up end up dead after I give this message. I think what he was really trying to do in this message was to bring these religious leaders to conviction of sin because they had rejected and crucified their own Messiah so that they could be brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Stephen's about to go down, but before he goes down he wants to lift up these Jewish religious leaders. He, he wants them to come to salvation. In a very real sense, he's giving up his life, but in giving up his life, he's praying and hoping that God will save some of these people that are before him. And in order for them to be saved, they need to know the sin that they've committed so that they can believe upon their Savior. So he's thinking about their eternity. He's thinking about their souls. He knows he only has one chance to do this. He's got one chance, and so he gives it everything he's got. In fact, it seems like he's being kind of offensive, but I think he knows they are so hard-hearted that he's going to have to use the big guns if he's going to make any headway to bring them to repentance. Let's pick it up in verse 51. And here it's the very end of his message. 
He's speeding up his message. I think he knows that he's dangerously close to being killed right away, and so he wants to make sure he gets this in before they, they interrupt him and stop his speech. And he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Now, he had already showed that they did this to Joseph. Oh, I think it's back in chapter 7, verse 9. Yes, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Joseph was the deliverer that God had raised up for them. Well, what did they do? First of all, they sold him into slavery. Uh, they refused to bow down. They, they said, We're, we will not have this man to rule over us. You have a preview of the coming of the true deliverer, Jesus, when they would say the same thing to him. We don't want to have this man to rule over us. So they did that in Joseph's life. They did the same thing with Moses. Look at verse 27. But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you, Moses, a ruler and a judge over us? And then verse 39, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, that is Moses, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. So he's showing a couple of their deliverers that they were unwilling to submit to. And then he's saying, You're just like your fathers. They repudiated the authority of Joseph and the authority of Moses, and you're following in their footsteps. You're stiff-necked, which means stubborn, and uncircumcised in heart. You might be circumcised in your flesh, but your heart is uncircumcised, meaning your heart is hard to God. Even though you're very religious, you have a hard heart towards God. And you always resist the Holy Spirit just like you're doing at this very moment and resisting what I've been trying to tell you about your Messiah. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. And then he says in 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You killed the Christ, the Messiah. You who received the law is ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And at that point, they couldn't take it anymore. We're going to leave that till next week, but that, at that point, his life was over. They were furious with him and they ended up stoning him to death. So he gives this last ditch effort to bring these people to Christ, to see their need of a Savior, to see their hard-heartedness, the fact that their hearts are uncircumcised, that they're resisting the Holy Spirit. He's trying to get through to them. And you would think that it was all in vain, right? Because he ends up dying. Except for the fact that there's one little note here in chapter 7. They began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul witnessed it. And I don't think Saul ever got this out of his mind. I think that was one of the goads that were urging him on. It was his conscience. At late, late in, uh, awake at night, he would remember that scene. It's not just that somebody died. It's how Stephen died, I think, that would be so convicting to Saul. Because just like in his life, he had the supernatural power of God, same thing happened in his death. 
He died just like his Lord. And Saul witnessed that. And I think God used that in bringing him to faith later on. So no, it was not all in vain. That One of the most powerful apostles who ever lived was converted through a roundabout way of, of witnessing Stephen's life and death. So I've said all that this morning to say I want you to see in the scripture today how much Stephen resembled Jesus Christ. First of all, in the way he lived. So let's go back through our points and see it again. He starts out waiting on tables. The Lord promotes him to greater ministry. Well, the same thing happens in Jesus' life. Right? He's born into a Jewish family. The Bible says that he grew in favor with God and men. It says after... Um, he was 12 years old. He returned back to his parents' home and he continued in subjection to them. So Jesus was absolutely obedient to his parents. He subjected, even though he was the son of God, he lived in subjection to his earthly parents. I mean, imagine having a child that never, ever disobeyed you. Never had a bad attitude. Can you guys even imagine that? <laughs> That's what he was. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's amazing to even think about it. So he starts off waiting on tables, but then at the right time, when it was God's time for him, the Lord raised him up. He was baptized by John the Baptist. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he was set forth uh, to do the will of God, which included all of the things that we read about in the Scriptures. He was promoted, you might say, to greater spheres of impactful ministry, where God used him in a tremendous way. He, he, he rocked the world that he lived in. He, he changed human history forever by the 33 years that he lived on this earth. So that's the first thing we see Stephen resembles Jesus. Secondly, Stephen ministered with power, and so did Jesus Christ. That's an obvious one, the parallel there. After Jesus is baptized, he begins to perform great signs and wonders. He turns water to wine. He multiplies fish and bread. He walks on water. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He raises the dead. There's a parallel between the two. In, in both of their lives, great power goes forth. Thirdly, Stephen experiences great persecution as a result of a faithful ministry, and so does Jesus Christ. And interestingly, both of them suffer persecution not from common sinners, but from the religious world. The bigwigs in the religious world. They come down on both of them. In the case of Jesus, there were multiple threats on his life. Not one or two. It seems like there, there's always someone trying to think of a way to do him in. Of course, when, it was, when it, his hour had not yet come, the Bible says, nothing would happen because it wasn't the Father's time for him to die. But he was reproached and reviled. Remember they said he was Satan, he was Beelzebul, and that's how he was able to cast out demons. So he said, you're, you're the devil. In another spot they would say, we were not born of fornication, obviously implying that they believe he was. So there was these reproaches and the, these insults cast on his life complete, um, continually. So, did he suffer all this persecution because he was a vile, wicked man? Because he was a blasphemer and a liar and a scoundrel and an adulterer and a fornicator? No. He was the holiest man who ever lived. He never committed sin. 
He always did the things pleasing to the Father. So why would you persecute a man like that? Because his teaching contradicted theirs. Right? They had a view of religion, and Jesus' life and ministry contradicted it. He would heal on the Sabbath. They didn't like that one bit. That's what got them so mad, is that he would violate their interpretation of how people should obey the Sabbath law. Also, the religious leaders were starting to lose power over the people. And Jesus was gaining that power. They were flocking to him. Wherever he went, thousands of people would follow him to be healed and to hear his teaching. So they were losing their influence on the common person. In fact, it even says in Scripture, it was because of envy that he was delivered up to be crucified. Because of envy. So, Stephen mirrors for us Jesus Christ, not only in his progression, not only in his, what was the second one? <laughs> Power, not only in persecution, but then finally in his preaching. Stephen was a powerful preacher and so was Jesus Christ. Stephen was fearless in reproving sin. I think he knew he was going to die for the things he said. I mean, how can he not know? He's, he's straight up just challenging, full in the face, these people who have the power to kill him. And he does it anyway. And that's the kind of man Jesus was. That's the kind of man John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was beheaded because of his fearless preaching to the most powerful man on the earth. In Matthew 23, Jesus talks to the religious leaders of his day. He calls them a brood of vipers, hypocrites, blind guides, and fools. And you think, Jesus, that's not going to go well with you. And it, and it didn't. He ends up being nailed to a tree because they didn't like him. And they didn't like the way he was so forthright and honest in his reproof of sin. So again, Stephen mirrors the Lord Jesus. Stephen looked a lot like Jesus in his life. And I think we're going to find out next Sunday he looked a lot like Jesus in his death. And so my challenge to all of us this morning is, do we look a lot like Jesus? Is it true of us? We started off this morning with that scripture from 1 John 2.6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. He is our example. And not just in, in suffering, he is that, but he's our example in all areas of the Christian life. Of course, none of us are deity, it breaks down there, but there, his whole life should be an example for us to seek to walk in. So I'm just going to throw out some questions for you, they're thought questions, to get you thinking about this. And if anyone's brave enough, we can have an open discussion about this subject when, when we're done with these questions. Do you see strong similarities in the life of Jesus in your life? Does your life look like his? I mean, think about the areas of your life and think about Jesus and say, okay, can I, th can I think of areas where, yeah, I do look like him? In what ways does your life not look like Jesus' life? The word Christian means one who follows Christ, so how closely are you following Christ? When someone looks at your life, are they going to think of Jesus? I think if someone looked at Stephen's life, they, they would think about Jesus, because the parallels are so obvious and so strong. 
What changes do you need to make today in order to bring your life into alignment with his life? So those are the questions I, I just throw them out there to get you thinking today. And like I said, I, I don't know how this is going to go, but if anybody's willing, if you have the courage to speak up, let's talk about this. Can you, do you see areas of the life of Jesus that really we, we don't take serious? We don't try to imitate him. And what can we do about it?